0: and welcome back to the While We're Waiting Hope After Child Loss podcast. I'm Jill Sullivan, your host and one of the co-founders of the While We're Waiting ministry. I'm so pleased to bring you a conversation today with my friend Teresa Davis. We met Teresa and her husband just a couple months ago when they attended a retreat here at the Refuge in Hot Springs, Arkansas. We had such a great conversation the other day, it ended up going well past our typical podcast length, so I've decided to share it over two episodes. I hope you'll listen in today to hear about Teresa's son, Andrew, and the incident that took him home to heaven in the fall of 2018. After his death, Teresa, who has known and loved the Lord for many years, went to a very dark place from which she thought she might never recover. Listen in to hear how God led her to lament through the first 37 chapters of Job and then met her there in the darkness. Then come back next week as we discuss her new devotional book, Finding Hope and Healing in the Midst of Grief. Thanks again for joining us today. Here's the first half of our conversation. Hi, Teresa. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you, Jill. I am just honored to be here with you today. Good. I have been looking forward to this all day. So I always like to get started by giving my guests an opportunity to tell a little bit about themselves. Uh, Tell us where you're from and what life is like for you there.
1: Well, I live in southern Indiana. So if you are familiar with the Kentucky Derby, we are just, just on the other side of the river, so to speak. Literally right across the Ohio in Sellersburg, Indiana. So that's where Tony and I live now. Um, I'm from a little town called uh, Lanesville, Indiana, and my husband's from Brandenburg, Kentucky. And uh, we met uh, when he had he and his family had moved to Corden when I was still in high school. So, um, but we have lived here for about 21 years here in Sellersburg, and. Um, We live within just a few miles of our church, which is really awesome because when we lived out in the country, uh, we drove about 20, 25 minutes to church. So it makes serving so much more um, uh, ready, you know, just on the spot, you can be there. And that's that's a huge blessing to be that close to our our church. But Mm -hmm. Tony, I've been married for 38 years. Uh, We have two children. Um, Andrew was born in 1986 and Sarah was born in 1987. So they were really close to one another. Yeah. Um, they both married both in the same year, which, you know, people don't really know that Andrew and Erica married in January of 2012. And uh, Sarah and her husband, Daniel, married in June of 2012. Wow. That so was a busy... within six months of each <laughs> other. Six
0: months, yeah. Yes.
1: Very busy year, that 2012. Um, And we have four grandchildren, which is the apple of our eyes. So we have uh, Sarah and Daniel have uh, Emma and Sadie. They're seven and two and a half. And then uh, Andrew and Erica have two as well. Uh, Jack is six and Sophie is four and a half. So um, we love uh, we spend a lot of time together as a family. Um, we, We still live close to one another. And we feel very blessed for to be able to have that interaction. We have we spend most Sundays together, which is a nice. huge blessing because we all make it a priority. And as much as we can, we are together on Sundays. And if we can't do it on Sundays, we try to do it another day of the week. Um, it's just something that we've committed to, and we've kept kept that commitment to one another. Um, Tony and I are self employed. Well, uh, we have a business that we run out of our home. And I work in that business, but I'm also an RN. I've been a nurse for 38 years. And I was 30 of those years was in a hospital. Uh, and the last seven years, I work in an endoscopy center where I have a little bit more flexible schedule that works well with our business. Um, I have a little bit more freedom there uh, with our hours. We like to travel. Tony and I have kind of committed to try to, since we're empty nesters, you know, we try to do something for ourselves. You know, the goal is once a month just to do something fun. You know, when you're self-employed, you you don't have near as much free time um, as you would like. Uh, So we try to commit to doing something fun. We love to go to the beach. In fact, we just got back from a beach vacation, which was wonderful. Um, So we like to travel. And we also, we're both very involved uh, in ministries at church. My husband has been involved with middle school kids since um, he was, I guess, for about 20, 22 years. It's kind of his calling, and he's 64, so it's not, wow. uh, he, he, they call him the, you know, the old guy, so it's something he loves, and um, I've been <laughs> well, involved in. a special
0: in, ministry to middle school kids.
1: <laughs> well, and you know, it's his heart. He he, His middle school years were rough. And so I think he's, he's just, and they love him. It's the crazy thing. He's 64. He he talks about it all the time. Um, you know, he, here he is 64 years old. He don't know the music. He don't know the shows. He, as far as being a part of what they do socially, but his connection with them is so much deeper than that, that they don't even notice it. it's, it's really quite unique. Um, the Lord has used him through his work at the church, he's had several young men that he had through middle school years actually go into ministry. Uh, So we've seen the reap the rewards of, of his devotion, which has been um, such a blessing for him and his life. And to see that happen, you know, words can't really describe when you see that. Um, And I've been uh, very involved in women's ministry throughout the years. I've, Uh, facilitated Bible studies for a decade and worked with women and prayed over women and counseled women and, uh, was just a huge calling on my life that, um, our church kind of did a shift a few years ago and they kind of done away with meeting as a big women's group. You know, they wanted everybody to move more into the small groups. Um, so it kind of changed the dynamics a little bit of our women's ministry. Um, but that is something that has always been a part of my heart: is teaching the Word of God. Absolutely,
0: yeah, I can see where you would be very good at that. From just a <laughs> little bit I've gotten to know you. Now you mentioned you have two kids. You told us a little bit about Sarah and her family. Now tell us about Andrew. What was he like?
1: Andrew was that kid that you would see outside uh, in his cowboy boots and no shirt, uh, brown as a button cotton top running around playing that that was his uh that's what he loved to do was to be outside and even in through his adulthood he was an avid outdoorsman but it started when he was such a little guy I have so many pictures of him running around uh you know with gun holsters over the top of his shorts and then his little cowboy boots and a cowboy hat but no shirt you know Uh um he just he loved being uh, outside, and we were we were out in the on the outskirts, kind of pretty much in the country, really. We had six acres at that time, so it's plenty of place for him to roam and play. Um, him and his sister were best friends because there was, you know, just a you know, fifteen months between them, and because we lived in the country, there there were no. Neighbors, so it right. was each uh-huh. each other, right? So sure. the 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 bond that they shared was tight from a very early age, just because they spent so much time together. And you know, back in those days, it's a little bit different than it is today. And most most of our interaction took place at church. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of interaction with other kids and other families, except at school. So sure. in the summers. You know, they they had each other. It was it would be funny because you she she's a teacher and she would love to play school. So she would they would make a a deal that if he would sit in her classroom, you know, in his shorts and boots and cowboy hat and let her teach him that then she would in turn play what he wanted, cowboys and Indians, Uh you know, uh when it was over. So that's that just kind of paints the picture of the kind of childhood uh, yes. that he had because he loved, he loved the outdoors. Yeah. You know, I could see him it. in my
0: mind's eye from that description. I can <laughs> yeah. Totally see him.
1: Uh, and then he, he accepted Jesus when he was seven years old. And, you know, the funny thing is you, you remember the old camcorders, you know, the yes. really big, the ones yeah. that first came out.
0: Looks like a TV uh, camera.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah, those, uh, I remember when he was baptized, I stood up, um, and I had this camcorder on my shoulder and I was crying so hard. You know, the camera was moving up and down. So we're trying to watch this kid being baptized afterwards and the cameras moving because <laughs> I was heaving sure. because I was just, you know, I was just so blessed uh, to see him accept the Lord and be baptized. And he was he was seven years old and. Um, when that happened, but it was a good memory. We all laughed about it because the camera (laughs) is said, don't let Teresa film any more baptisms. (laughs) I couldn't control my emotions. I was so happy. Um, Of course. But he, he loved to play um, as he went, you know, moved through school. uh, Soccer uh, was his kind of his thing. And he, he loved people and even, even as a young kid and even in high school, you know, he spent as much time with his friends as he could. He just was very social. He loved being around people. Um, he loved forming those strong bonds. Uh, and many of his his college buddies, especially, um, you know, had stayed in st- touch all through the years because of the bond that they had formed together. Um, he loved Jesus, and he he was very involved in Bible studies and small groups and mission trips through high school. And he got the bug to fly. Andrew was a pilot, and when he was thirteen, he he became very interested in, in planes and wanting to fly. And we took him out to one of the local airports and let him do one of those beginner flights. Um, and he he was hooked. I mean, I've never seen a kid more focused. He never wavered. Now this was thirteen. Um, we were we were blessed at the church that we had at the time there were a lot of UPS pilots that attended that church and one of them kind of took him under his wing and kind of, even at that age, and, you know, kind of just um, kind of mentored him along to shape him, give him an idea of what, you know, being a pilot was all about. And he never wavered from that in, in high school. um, He got his private pilot certificate at the local airport here, Clark County airport before he went off to college uh, and and he pursued that degree college as well at Indiana state. Um, He double majored in professional aviation and aviation administration. So it was like the love of his, all aviation (laughs) all the way. Um, And then after college, he stayed uh, on campus there and flight instructed. You know, when you become a pilot, it's all about the time. It's all about the hours and the plane. That's what it's all about. So he flight instructed there, and then he um, he moved to Arizona. His dad and I packed him up, and his dad and him drove a trailer all the way to Phoenix, Arizona. And he was a flight instructor there at a flight academy for just a few short months. It was about six months because he got so homesick. Uh, he had just met in his just met his bride to be before he left for this trip, and so he. You know, at first, you know, going to Arizona sounded great until he had this crush on this little gal, sure. who, who became his wife. But um, you know, never underestimate the power of love because when he he came home for Christmas, now he had only been there since summer. He came home for Christmas. He had a job before he went back uh, to Arizona, so he went back and gave his two weeks' notice and came, came back toward came back to Indiana. <laughs> Uh, he had gotten a, his first job was at a small airport in Muncie um, there where he would uh, they sold planes and he he would be their flight instructor was his job Not there.
0: Sure.
1: Um, and sure. then he and Erica um, got married, like I said, in um, in January of 2012. And, you know, those those lean years of flight instructing were lean years financially taught Andrew how to be frugal. Uh, Andrew was a very frugal young man and, you know, we taught the Dave Ramsey way growing up and he very much latched onto that and took that to heart, and made that a part of his life and lived by it. And those frugal years really taught him how to manage man- manage money, um, which you need when, you know, when you're a young pilot and you're trying to make a go of it and you've got a family sure. to take care of. Um, but um he he had that job there and he and Erica married in 2012 like I said and then in 2014 the job opportunity came available in Dayton and that's what you do as a pilot you you know you sure. move where the job is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, they were there their first child was born there er, uh, Andrew and Erica had their first child a son Jack in 2015 they had moved there in 14 and, had Jack in 2015 and Andrew there was nothing he was more proud of than being a father. He and Bond, him and Jack had a special bond, uh, a, a really special bond. Um, he, he, They were very close father and son and then in 2017 they welcomed their second child, little Sophia, the apple of his eye. She looked exactly, she, she still does look just like her dad. Uh, and then and then in 2017, he called me and he said, Mom, he said, um, I got a job interview in Jeffersonville, which is a small little town close to us. He said, now, don't get your hopes up uh, because Andrew is, you know, is a son. And when he moved away, he moved away. E- even in college, he barely came home in the summers because he did a lot of mission work in the summers. So he, he had never lived close Since he went away to college. So, you know, telling me not to get excited, you know, (laughs) was uh, not possible. So he said, it's just an interview. He said, I just I wanted you and dad to know about it so you guys could pray. Um, So we did. And he got the job and they moved home. Then February of um, 2017, they came, excuse me, uh, February of 2018, they moved home. And lived in Jeffersonville, not far from us. Um, and his his goal was to be a UPS pilot, and that was his goal from the get go. And so he was. Uh, I mentioned that mentor uh, that he had, and um, he stayed with Andrew. His name was Eric, and he has stayed with Andrew um, all the way from that very young, tender age through high school, when he was getting his private license, through college, and then once again uh, he. He was here to mentor Andrew into this next step of, of applying to UPS. So he was sure. in the process of doing that um, when they came home.
0: I love that, that he was such a um, so dedicated to knowing what he wanted to be when he grew up and he never wavered from that. There, you don't see very many young people like that these days. But uh, God had clearly called him and he was fulfilling his call, sounds like. Yes, he heard
1: it and never wavered.
0: Yeah. So let's go back now to the fall of 2018. Uh, Life was good for your family. Andrew and Erica were living nearby now, like you said. You had just celebrated Thanksgiving that year. You were working on some home improvement projects. And then you received a phone call. Uh, Talk about that day and the events that followed. Um,
1: Well, you you said it perfectly, uh, Jill. I mean, life was, uh, I was living the dream. You know, our, our daughter had lived close to us and we had had that wonderful relationship with her living, living close and doing life. And now we were getting to do that with Andrew and Erica. And um, I was on my hands and knees and I was cleaning up from some painting that had been done. And I heard my phone ring and I, I got up to go answer it. And, and it was Erica, which usually, you know, we texted a lot. We didn't necessarily talk by phone. Um so I picked it up because she had um, she was in Chicago and she had her parents lived there and she had gone there for her nephew's birthday. Um, so she had was waiting for Andrew. He had uh, flown out that morning to take his um, the president of his company and his vice president to a meeting. And they were going to meet up in Chicago and he had flown out of Clark County Airport here uh, close to us. And so I picked up the phone and I said, hey, Erica. And she was, she was crying and I immediately knew something was wrong. And I said, what's wrong? You know, in my mind, I'm, I'm racing through my mind, that something that happened to one of the children. Sure. Um, and she said, Teresa, she said, Andrew's plane never made it to Chicago, And I asked her to repeat it. I said, well, what do you mean didn't make it to Chicago? You know, in my mind, I'm just, I'm like, what? I'm trying to figure out what exactly that means. And she said, Mike said, call Andrew's parents. And Mike was one of Andrew's coworkers that they um, um, both worked together for the same company. And Mike had called her. And she was waiting at Chicago Midway Airport in the cell phone lot waiting for the call from Andrew that he had landed when she got the call from Mike. So I told her, I said, um, I said, honey, I said, I, I'm, I'm going to hang up and I'm going to go to the airport and I will call you as soon as I know anything. And I said, let me pray with you. And, um, you know, by this time, you know, I was feeling that panic that a mother feels but you don't show it because you got to be strong right you've got to be right. strong and mm-hmm. and figure out what's functional. going on and mm-hmm. functional and so i prayed with her and my husband came around the corner and he was recovering from uh, a second shoulder surgery that uh, he had fallen off a ladder back in July of 17 and it had surgery and it didn't go well so he had a second surgery so he was recovering and I said, I didn't tell him what she told me. I said, uh, Andrew, um, Erica is waiting for Andrew at the airport. uh, And there's some kind of communication issue. And I am, I'm going to the airport. And so I flew out of here and I got to the airport. And, you know, in my mind, I kept thinking if I could prove that he didn't fly out of the hangar that day that it wasn't him it wasn't him when I pulled out of the driveway I looked down at my phone and I had gotten alert while I was cleaning that I didn't see and it said that there was a a plane that went down in Memphis Indiana that had left from Clark County Airport you know well at that point that's basically all it said so when I got to the airport I, I jumped out of my car and I ran through the airport, just shouting for anybody to help me. And this young man came out of nowhere and he said, can I help you, ma'am? And I told him, you know, I'm Andrew Davis's mother. And and um, did he fly out of here this morning? And he said, let, let me take you to our manager. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that I'm an RN and 10 of those years I spent in the ER. And I have relayed bad news to people many times. And yes. so I had an ominous feeling, but I, I wouldn't sure. submit to it, and so he took me to the airport manager, and he came out of his office, and he said, very kind of coldly, just not very warm at all, he said, do you have anybody that could be with you, and about that time, I, I got an alert on my phone, and it said no survivors of the Memphis plane crash, and I remember that day like it was yesterday because I fell down on my knees. And in front of all these people, I didn't even care. And I said, Lord, please be with me and be with my son and, and help me, Jesus. That's all I could say was help me, Jesus. And I, I, I ran back to my car and, and I got in my car and I called the TV station, uh, the news station that had released the information. And I said, can you give me the address of the Memphis airplane crash? I was very, you know, calm. I didn't want them to suspect. So they gave me the address and I put it in my GPS. And, you know, I said to the Lord, you've got to give me strength because I don't know if I can do this. And I got down the road a little bit and I started to become overcome with emotion. So I pulled off on the side of the road and I prayed and I asked the Lord to give me strength. And then I made I called every ER local and nobody had had any survivors brought in from a plane crash in Memphis, Indiana. And so as I started driving to the crash site, it was about 20 minutes from where I was and my husband just kept calling my phone repeatedly and I wouldn't answer it. And finally um, I got a call from a number I didn't recognize and I thought, oh, you know, maybe it's some information and it was the police. And he said, Ms. Davis, he said, do not go to the crash site. And um, I said, well, I'm already on my way. And he said, they're not going to let you on the crash site. And I I just hung up on him. And then my husband called me and he was crying and he was begging me to come home. And he said the police had called and I said, just stop right there. Just stop right there. So I, I made it to the crash site. But when I got there, Um, the police stopped me, and they wouldn't let me near it, and he got very firm with me, told me to get in the car and to go home, and I got in the car, and as I drove away, I'll never forget the sinking feeling that I had that I'll never see my son alive again, and after, you know, what ensued from that point on was, you know, I got home. I don't know how I got home. I was completely numb. I couldn't feel my hands on the steering wheel. I couldn't, Mm -hmm. I couldn't hardly control the gas because I couldn't feel my feet. Uh, And when I got, I finally got home, I got out of the car, I stood up and I didn't have legs and they just, I fell to the ground my legs were numb. And, you know, my family got me in the house and, um, You know, from that point on, our home was flooded with people coming to try to be a condolence. We had so many people here. Uh, A lot of it is a fog. I don't remember a lot of it. Uh, But I just remember hearing a lot of voices everywhere. And we we kept calling Erica and trying to communicate with her by FaceTime. And she was all the way in Chicago. She was with her family, but, you know, she wasn't here. And it was there was no information and the police wouldn't communicate with us because they had, they had marked it off, you know, as a, as an investigation because the NTSB was on the way because it, you know, was an FAA um, situation now. And so we waited, this was Friday and nobody would talk to us. Uh, And I, I called everybody that I knew the police wouldn't talk. They, they said, I can't tell you anything. We're just providing security around the perimeter. So all I could think about was my son is alive and they can't find him. And mm-hmm. I need to be there. I need to find him because they're just not looking in the right places. Yeah. And I felt like the longer the hours went, the less chance he had of survival because they couldn't find his body. And finally, uh, I called. I don't even know how I got a hold of the coroner. I, I remember I called so many places. And a lady said, call this number. And I did. And it was the coroner. I left the message. He was at the crash site. And he, he called me back Friday night. And he was the kindest man, the kindest voice I'd ever heard. And he said, "Miss Davis, you know, the terrain is difficult. It's very wooded. But it started to rain. It's dark. And he said, we're going to leave. And I said, What do you mean you're going to leave? You know, how do you know? How do you know that my son is not laying in a field somewhere trying to survive and I can't get to him? You all won't let me there to get to him. And he said, Ms. Davis, he said, nobody survived this crash. Mm. And I remember the weight of his words were so heavy. So he said, I will call you tomorrow. He said, we'll be back out here at first light. Well, then the news coverage started, so it was just constant aerial shots, and you know they they released the name of Andrews, um, the uh, you know the president of the company and the vice president because they they found identification of them and they released their names, but they wouldn't release Andrew's name. This went on until Sunday morning, and he called and he said, um, "I'm going to be announcing." uh Andrew's name. I mean they knew that Andrew was on the flight manifest, it was his flight, but they could not um they could not release his name until they were sure he was on the plane. Sure.
0: Uh,
1: and so that night it was a Sunday night and we turned the T V on to see what the news was showing and there was a a fella from Emory Riddle, and he was doing an analysis of Andrew's last communications with the control tower. And it was very unexpected. And, uh, I mean, literally, we turned it on. We heard this man speaking, and then we heard Andrew's voice. And they, oh, were, wow. they were doing small clips. You know, they would play his voice, and they'd say, this is normal. This is what he's doing. And then they would play another clip, and then they would say, and then, you know, it was extremely overwhelming to hear the sound of your son's voice, knowing you're never going to hear the sound of your son's voice again. But yet you're hearing this communication on the television. Um, it, was, it was devastating. It was, it was so devastating. Um, and that was the beginning, you know, of our, of our nightmare. It was a three-day-long nightmare
0: of waiting and waiting and waiting for the confirmation of his death. So at what point did they, did they finally acknowledge his death?
1: Well, um, we did not have a body. Um, so they, um, they were able to identify by some of the things that they found at the crash site. So they, um, they released his name, um, you know, the plane fell from 6,000 feet and um, it uh, the plane malfunctioned mm-hmm. shortly after takeoff. So the plane went down four minutes after takeoff. Uh, so pretty immediately, he knew something was wrong, um, sure. but he was not able to gain control of the aircraft. Um, so it was very everything was destroyed I mean the, there was nothing left so um, so when you know the news came you know that they were able to identify enough to say that he was a part uh, you know he was you know definitely the pilot of the aircraft um, then we settled in to try to start processing our grief Sure.
0: In your book, you talk about how your grief took you to a very dark place. You even refer to it as a scary place. So would you share that experience with us?
1: It was probably um, the darkest place I'd ever been as an adult because I was angry, Jill, and I was angry at God. Um, You know, you don't... I know you're a grieving mother, so I know you understand this. There is no rest. There is, you know, I would try to lay my body down on the bed and it would be constant flipping and turning until I was up and walking the, the, the house. Right. You know, there was mm-hmm. there is no rest to be found in that type of grief. It is extremely overwhelming. The trauma of it, the, the you know, I would get to the point where I would be almost stuporous from no sleep. But if I closed my eyes, I would have nightmares. And so it was this haunting that came over me and I was angry at God and I would shout things at him and I would accuse him of things. And I called him a liar. I said, strong things, Jill. I told him I hated him. I told him, you are a liar. You did not keep your word. You betrayed me. You did not protect my son. You said you were going to protect my son. You did not protect my son. And this dialogue between me and God ensued. And it went on for days. And, you know, it, it took me, it, it, was, it, was, it was satanic. It was like a spiritual warfare. And it took me to a very dangerous place that I did not feel God's presence. For the first time in my adult life, I did not feel God's presence. It felt cold. It was a scary place. And one night, you know, I got so hung up on the fact that he did not protect Andrew and he could have protected Andrew. And I was accusing him that his protection was false. And one night when I drifted off in that slumber, I had a nightmare. And I could see myself driving in a in a car. The car didn't have a roof. It was just me. I could see the back of me and I could see myself from up above. And this car was going down the road and I was driving. And out of nowhere, these really big, dark, huge arms and hands came down to snatch me out of that car. And it was the realest nightmare I'd ever had because I felt those hands touch me. And the fear that overcame me in that moment was the scariest fear I've ever had because it was demonic. And I felt immediately the Holy Spirit rescue me. And I sat up in bed and those hands were immediately taken off of me and I was safe. And he said to me in my spirit, I have never left you or forsaken you and I am with you always and he told me without my protection things would be much different and it was a warning in a sense that God was he was comforting me by telling me oh yes I am protecting you and the ones you love but it was also a warning and I, I was the most terrified that I had ever been in my spiritual walk. And I called. This is why community jail is so important because had I not had believing prayer warrior sisters that I had spent much time in the Word with, they loved me. They, They didn't have a clue what I was going through, but they knew I needed them. And I said, I need prayer. Call everybody you know and pray for me because I'm in a very dangerous place right now and I need rescued yeah. by the Holy spirit. And yeah. um, they prayed for me and I felt that oppression leave me. Um, it was, it was not like any oppression that I have ever felt. I, I, I literally felt like I had gone to Hades in my grief because I was so wrought with grief if you know in the scripture you know it it he talks about how they would rip their clothes and mm-hmm. I understood that as you do too you know I wanted to just rip my chest open there was just no relief from the grief and the heaviness and the pressure and I wanted somebody to blame I wanted to hold God responsible and that's just what Satan does and he twists things and he makes us believe lies. He, he presents that opportunity. And because I was so desperate to have an answer to why this happened, I was so ready to place that blame on God. And he was cheering me on until the Holy Spirit, you know, thank God for the Holy Spirit because he came to me and he said, Oh, yes, I am protecting you. And he showed me what it would be like if he wasn't protecting me. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, and you've talked about in your in your book, you talk about the difference between physical protection and spiritual protection. You want to talk about that a little bit?
1: Yes, um, that was my biggest hang hangup uh, when you know we're, our kids were little. We started every day with devotion. The Word of God was taught in our house from the moment they were born till the moment they walked out. Uh, there was never a moment that the word of God was not proclaimed, preached, um, you know, prayed. It was just, I felt so cheated that I felt like God didn't keep his end of the bargain. And because I was convinced that his word promised physical protection. When I got to a place, uh, and it took a while, and I got to a place when I could start searching the scriptures, he he mm-hmm. revealed to me, In 2 Corinthians, uh, chapter 1, verse 22, it tells us clearly that we are sealed with a promise that when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, His seal is on us and we belong to Him. And our salvation and our eternity and our security in Jesus is guaranteed. What He's taught me in my quest for answers. Is that physical protection is given in God's sovereignty? Mm-hmm. I don't understand that. I don't claim to understand it. I, I probably won't understand it until I'm sitting in front of Jesus. That that protection, because I have searched the Word, and I could—we could spend a long time—and I could tell you every story, every biblical story that I have searched, where God rescued and God did not rescue. Mm-hmm. In people who were serving him, it is based on God's sovereignty, and yes. I had to learn that He had to show me that compassionately through digging through the scriptures that that protection comes in God's sovereignty, and I may not understand that's it because God holds some things in the secret place. There are some things right. that we will not be revealed to us while
0: we're still on this earth. That's right. Deuteronomy 29:29. 29, 29. It's one of those the secret things belong to the Lord. There are things hidden that we will not know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I love that that designation you make or that differentiation you make between physical protection and spiritual protection, because I think so many of us think that we're kind of owed that physical protection, but like you said, that falls under the sovereignty of God. But that spiritual protection—that's the promise, and that's what we can depend on. And um, I just think that's important for us to to understand or to, to know as grieving parents. Um, at the retreat that you attended earlier this summer, you talked about how you—and I think maybe it was you and Tony. We're listening to the book of Job on your Bible app. And you listen through f- chapters one through 37, 37, one through 37. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one through 37 over and over and over again. Um, talk about that. Well,
1: uh, I, I'm not sure, you know, everybody's grief journey is very differently. Uh, yes. And, you know, I, I've had people say to me, Not directly, but implied that it was wrong of me to question God. But, you know, in my experience, and we can talk about this a little later, but the questioning of God is what has brought me to an intimacy that I would have not known any other way. And what was happening that day, oh, well, a period of time, I could not pray, I could not read his word I just couldn't do it mm-hmm. but I could listen and I wanted answers and so went straight to the book of job and I would hit that play button and I would listen to the whole book I would listen to the whole book I would listen to it over and over and over and I don't know what I thought I was doing you know some of it I think I heard and some of it I didn't but I would just I would just sit down when I when I I would just I can't even tell you how many times I did it in and, and one day. And I, and I wish I, I looked in my journal because I didn't record everything in my journal that I kept for a year. But I looked in my journal to see if I put a date on when this happened. And I didn't. And I wish I would have because I don't know how far I was into my journey when this happened. But I, I remember I had listened to all of the, you know, the whole thing, all of the things that Job went through, all of the things that all of his friends had to say. And this particular day, when we got to the part where God appeared to Job in a whirlwind, that that jumped out of that phone at me like megaphones. Mm -hmm. And I heard God say to Job, Brace yourself like a man, because I'm going to ask you some questions and you're going to answer. And it just, I'm not kidding. It was like I had these megaphones on and I I just, and so I, I kind of sat up like, okay, well, you've got my attention. And he said to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I hung the moon and the stars? And it just goes on and on and on when he asked Job. And then he says, Tell me, tell me if you understand. It it, it was almost like sarcasm. You know, it was like God was telling Joel, "Okay, I've let you lament. This is what I felt in my spirit. I've let you lament for 37 chapters and I haven't said a word. And now it's time for me to say what's on my mind. And and what I heard in my spirit was, Teresa, I've let you lament for 37 chapters. Now it's time for you to be thankful for what you still have in your life. It was so plain; I did not hear the voice of God audibly, and I don't want to, you know, give that impression. But in my spirit, it was if He spoke it to me. It is time for you to start being thankful for the things that you still have in your life, because all I could do was focus on what I lost. Um, it was the the it was just the. The magnitude of it, I, I couldn't grasp it. And all I could think about was what I had lost. And I remember the conversation that we had. And, and I said, no, no, don't think so, God. No, thank you. You know, the the, the, the kids, the girls have taught the kids, you know, the grandchildren, when, when you don't want something, don't be rude. Just say no, thank you. And I said, no, thank you, God. Nope not going to happen. I don't have anything to be thankful for. My son is dead. And I, I remember just having that frank conversation with him. And, and it just wouldn't leave me, Jill. I mean, the Holy Spirit talking about the hound of heaven. I mean, it just wouldn't leave me. He just kept coming back to me. He just kept coming back to me. Be thankful, be thankful, be thankful. And so one night, he just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't get it off my mind. So I got down on this, of my bed on my knees. And it was so hard to utter that first thing to be thankful for. I didn't want to. It was almost like I'm in control here and I'll decide what I'm thankful for. And, you know, it was so not what God wanted me to, to that He didn't want me to be in that place. But He began to flood my mind with what I still had to be thankful for. And so I said the first thing and it was hard. It was hard. But I said that first thing and I sat there in silence and he was filling my mind with what he wanted me to be thankful for. And I began to spill it out, Jill. I began to say everything, everything that I had to be thankful for. And it just went on and on and on. I don't even know the time frame because I I was so lost in that moment. It just went on and on and on till I was literally exhausted when I got up Hmm. from the side of that bed. And that was a turning point in my journey because I realized, yes, I have lost greatly, but I have so much to be thankful for and I need to start verbalizing that in my life.
0: Thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. We hope it brought you some comfort and encouragement today and maybe made you feel a little less alone on the journey. Please subscribe so you'll never miss an episode and and maybe leave us a rating in iTunes to help others find the podcast. Again, we're glad you spent a few minutes with us today. It's a blessing to walk beside you as we seek to live well while we're waiting.